I, I really do urge you all to come back tomorrow because there are some genuinely good speakers tomorrow. Um, uh, Hilda is here and Edward Mortimer and Jonathan and many other friends are speaking tomorrow and I think you will have a wonderful day. My excuse for not being with you tomorrow is I really did sort of stand in at the last moment for Michael Williams. And, you know, somehow I found being number two in the UN it was one's job to stand in for one's lieutenants most of the time, so I'm glad that some things have never changed. Uh, but I, I just wanted to start, given that it is the UN at 70, with just a little bit of a theory uh, on the four phases of the UN's life to, to set up a discussion about UN and peace today. And, and none of it will be original or new to those of you who, who, who follow the UN, but I think it it's perhaps frames your discussion tomorrow and perhaps even our discussion tonight. First thing to say is that there was that sort of phase one, the founding vision period, where the sort of scars of the Second World War and an organization designed by the victorious allies even before they were victorious, designed still during the sort of heat of war, was above all else a security organization. And this is the bit that's often gotten forgotten because it's a lot easier to think of it as a human rights and a development and a humanitarian organization. But what drove Roosevelt and Churchill and those who worked for them to spend so much time framing this organization even while they still had a war to prosecute and win, was this sense that there needed to be a new post-war security arrangement where the Allies were able to collectively uh, impose peace, prevent uh, a war as bad or a war at all like the Second World War uh, re-emerging and would we work with regional Allies. And as someone who spent a little bit of time you know, reading through the papers and speeches and discussions of that time, the extent to which Roosevelt particularly and subsequently Truman saw this as, in a sense, franchising out security of the US not being left as a single global policeman, but having a network of allies and regional arrangements which would allow a kind of US Pax Americana to prevail, but not and the Pax Americana in a kind of crude nationalist sense, but one committed to the sort of progressive values of a global free trade system and a rule of law, uh, but backed and underpinned and secured by collective security arrangements which would prevent uh, the kind of League of Nations collapse of the Second World War which, which, which had followed. Now, of course, that vision which uh, way ended up going way beyond security and whose words about development and human rights, uh, whether it was the words of the Charter itself or subsequently of Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, language on human rights, were so vaunting in their ambition that that kind of interest, that self-interest of security and peace has in many ways been sort of overlooked in those early histories of, of the UN's first year. But particularly because we so quickly entered phase two, the Cold War years, you know, you can take your opening point, whether it was Churchill's speech in Fulton, Missouri about uh, the, the, the 
the rise of an iron curtain, or whether it was the early actions of the Russians in the Security Council, that we entered that very prolonged period from the 1940s, uh, late 1940s, through till 1989, where, you know, in broad measure, the Security Council was a deadlocked institution around major matters of, 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 of war and peace. And with this led to, to two things. First, it was only allowed to deal with, and the UN as a whole was only allowed to deal with, if you like, the sort of B agenda of political issues. But that B agenda was an enormously important one because it was the process of decolonization uh, which allowed the UN out of the limelight of Cold War confrontation to be the midwife of an extraordinary pro pro process of state independence and formation. The tripling and more of the number of UN member states reflecting this process of former colonies gaining independence and the UN providing not just the political midwifery to that process, but also the technical assistance and development know-how and early support to set new nation states on, on, on their feet. But even more important than that critical role in that most important of global transitions was the development of the humanitarian and development side of the UN. And here a moment, brief sort of moment of political biography that, you know, I, I had begun my UN career uh, postgraduate school in the US as, you know, literally an intern who had a kind of fluent uh, English writing style, so was drafted onto the 38th floor uh, uh, in 1976 to write the stuff that a already geographically prescribed uh, 38th floor didn't have enough sort of mother English mother tongue uh, writers and speakers to do. Um, and so when a few years later I had moved on to what was my passion at the time, which was the humanitarian work of the UN, and was running a very large refugee camp on the Thai-Cambodian border in 1979, my old boss, Kurt Waldheim, showed up <laughs> and as UN Secretary General, and he looked at this camp that was my pride and joy. It was the largest Cambodian city in the world, as it happened, because Phnom Penh was so depleted that we had more Cambodians in this city or camp of Khao Dang on the Thai-Cambodian border than there were in Phnom Penh itself. Um, and he said to me, Nobody told me about this. What is this? And this simple incident actually summed up for me, summed up for me to this day, the UN of the Cold War years, which was that humanitarian agencies yes. like UNHCR or UNICEF and many others were running a, along with the Red Cross, ICRC, were running a massive humanitarian support operation the victims of Cold War conflicts, but entirely out of the range of the UN Security Council and its gridlock and deadlocks. So that period of the 70s and 80s, as both the process of decolonization ran into different conflicts and 
failing and, and challenged states. And as East and West, through proxies, engaged in the Horn of Africa, in Central America, in South Asia between Afghanistan uh, and, and its Pakistan and Indian neighbors, as all these conflicts erupted, the one area of UN activity which exploded was humanitarian and development activity. And it did so with no reference to the Security Council. Mm. Uh, the whole basis on which these operations were based was international law. As a young UN refugee officer, I would quote to some sort of empty-eyed, violent-looking <coughs> Khmer Rouge cadre or the Thai border guard who uh, <laughs> wanted to resist Cambodians coming into his country. Not a resolution of the Security Council, uh, but a chunk of the Geneva Conventions yeah. or the UNHCR statutes. Mm -hmm. It was framed on a kind of loose set of principles of, of international law. And this is enormously important because you know, this was, as I say, a period where the political side of the UN was, was kind of frozen and withering, uh, and where the humanitarian and development was exploding. And let me just give you a similar little sort of biographical example from the development side, which was years later, as a new administrator of UNDP, I was told by my colleagues that the first trip I had to make was to China. And we're now talking the late 90s, China's takeoff had already uh, dramatically underway. And so I arrive, a youngish UN official, a little daunted by, by who am I going to meet in China? Are the officials suitable? Am I going to kind of make enough of an impact? I land at Beijing Airport. I am whisked off to the Badahai, which was the, the, the sort of Hamptons or um, of, of where the Chinese leadership spend their summers, whisked down to a beach where President Zhang Zemin <laughs> was standing with his trousers rolled up in the water with his grandson. Um, and grandsons are very precious under the Chinese one-child family policy. Uh, and he greets me, a young UN official, you know, in my first big job, and says... UNDP was the only organization in China uh, during the, uh, both, well, just both during the worst years of Mao and, and, and the years thereafter. He said, my first ever foreign trip was a UNDP funded trip when I was a young vice minister for trade in 1978, sorry, 1976 rather, to see export processing zones around the world. UNDP connected me and the group who ruled China at that time, you know, to the international community. And again, this side of the UN was also a million miles away from the deadlock of the Security Council. It was extraordinary people taking advantage of the relative invisibility of these activities to do extraordinary things and to never dream for a moment of appealing for political permission to the UN Security Council. <laughs> and perhaps, therefore, the greatest error, the flaw for which we all suffer to this day, is after 1989, when we went into the third phase of my four lives of the 70-year-old UN. Uh, we, in the interests of both 
trying to address the fact that so many of these humanitarian and development crises we were dealing with had political roots and a feeling that we couldn't forever be in the Band-Aid business. We had to get at these roots. That, in a sense, made a new generation of us a little too seduced by the idea that a reference to the Security Council might help us bring political peacemaking and mediation power to bear on these conflicts. But much more critically, post-1989, we assumed there was a broad consensus again. That consensus, which had been so elusive since 1946, and that we now had a, a, a world where the superpowers and P5 were in broad agreement uh, ab about the direction of the world. And so this exuberance lasted and take your dates from around 1989 or shortly thereafter, you know, up until the early years of this century. Whether it was, you know, the 9-11 attacks on New York or some other moments when this whole thing started to come on awry, there was nevertheless a period in which we all, like sheep to the slaughter, took our problems to the Security Council. Uh, something, I think, at least in my case, I now deeply regret. Because we've now entered a fourth phase of the UN uh, existence. And, you know, I suppose, you know, I, I think the biblical 70 and 10, I mean, we're, 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 we're getting there. But that fourth phase comes, you know, in the uh, is an entirely new period, which has elements of the past, but elements of a very new situation as well. The element of the past is we are returning to a permanently divided, conflicted Security Council. Uh, there is absolutely no expectation anymore that China and Russia will agree with its three Western permanent members on almost anything of significance. <coughs> now, I think, you know, you have to separate between the two of them. You know, China is in many ways a country with a great respect, in my view, for the rule of law and for the system of the post-World War world. It is very cognizant of the fact that it's done very well by it, uh, that the institution, the international institutions have been you know, real enablers of its entry into the global economy, of its modernization and, and, and development. And my little anecdote of Jiang Zemin, uh, and his willingness to have a scared new UNDP chief come and visit him in Badai is just one symbol of that respect that China has still, I think, for, for the UN and for the international structures while recognizing their <coughs> Western uh, paternity. But that said, in some ways, it's more of a prickler for the Charter and some of those protections of that Charter to sovereignty uh, than the rest of us are, as we look to find loopholes in the Charter to allow more intervention to protect human rights uh, and other issues across borders, it is China which has become the guardian of a most rigid two-dimensional vision of that Charter as being a Charter of interstate arrangements. Russia is something very different. You know, Russia is a rogue state, basically. Uh, gone a little wild on the aftermath of its fall from uh, of its fall from, from from grace and 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 power. Its return is as a regional troublemaker, not a global troublemaker, uh, but a very effective one. 
in which it borrows Western doctrines and abuses them horribly to make the case for seizing <laughs> Crimea or, or, or intervening in eastern Ukraine, uh, in which Putin recognizes the basic weakness of NATO and of uh, Western defense spending and exploits it ruthlessly. But you know, ultimately, is a regional problem to be contained. Mm -hmm. Not, not. This is not a return to the kind of Cold War years of some, mm -hmm. in, in which he can project global competition. The key competitor, and as I say, it's a very different kind of competitor because, in many ways, it's very respectful of many of the same rules as us. Is 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 China? But nevertheless, it is a competitor, and it represents, you know, a further, if you like. Uh, sort of dilution or, or dispersal of power uh, across you know, a much broader set of international actors than was the case in the past. But if this new phase of UN life is, is reflected both by this assertion of China and sort of regional resurgence of, of, of Russia, it has another trait to it as well, which is different states and parts of the world are dealing very differently with the political and economic and technology phenomenon that we call globalization. Whereas China and Russia have treated this as an, a circumstance in which to reassert state organization and state power, with China an economic security state and Russia a national security state, in the West, we very much think of ourselves as post-industrial and almost post-state, uh, with a vision of international collaboration which rests increasingly not on states' engagements with each other, but on different interest groups, civil society, uh, in businesses, others, new stakeholders in a global political economy, which we no longer see as having the state alone at the center of its structure and control. So we've complicated international affairs in an astonishing way. We've got half the world which is post-state and half the world which is old state. Yeah. And you know, we just have not got an international system which knows how to deal uh, with these two very different structures of a future international relations. Westphalia thought of as a very Western, well, as a very European concept. The new Westphalians are Russia and China. Yeah. Uh, and the new, if you like, uh, champions of a civil society-centered world are all of us here in the West. And so we struggle to find a way to engage with each other with this you know, very uneven uh, and imbalanced and different way that we've, we've reacted uh, to, to, the new, uh, to the new circumstances. So how, looking to the UN's future, to the next 70 years, do we try and make sense of all of this? And here, just, just a, a, a few thoughts. First, that Security Council gridlock that I've described as re-emerging means that almost certainly, again, the focus is going to be on humanitarian and development but a humanitarian and development which escapes the stranglehold of the Security Council, where again, we assert the development of these, we assert these activities on a rationale and platform of international law and principles, 
rather than on a Security Council mandate. And, you know, I think the first test case where you see the beginnings of this transition is actually Syria, uh, where the Security Council has remained gridlocked on this, you know, for years now but where increasingly the courage has been gathered by humanitarian agencies to seek international legal opinion that they have a right to operate cross-border operations into Syria despite the opposition of the Assad regime because people's needs must be met. So we're beginning to see a return to the kind of UN of my first working life which is a UN which will run operations, which will do its best, and you know this is more a turn of phrase than a reality, to keep a secret from the Security Council and the UN Secretary General of the day, because with today's media, those kinds of secrets are not easy to keep. Um, but you know, I think that will be one part of it. But the second part, and an equally significant one, is does the UN have the flexibility to, in a sense, move beyond its interstate origins and, 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 and DNA to a more flexible, networked, multi-stakeholder, civil society-oriented organization, which doesn't replace states, but supplements them with this sort of much broader dialogue. And here, I think, you know, there are signals good and bad. The, the good signal is the UN has actually over its 70 years been much more adaptable than say the European Union. You know, partly it's because it's always been kept on a short financial leash by states. You know, it's always been poor enough to have to scramble to adjust and adapt to meet the wage bill. Uh, whereas the EU is by contrast sort of comfortable and therefore complacent. Uh, with a hugely bigger budget than the UN has, despite the fact it's dealing with a fraction of the population and you know much richer citizens with arguably much less need than those that the UN sees, uh, seeks to serve. You know, but the other part of this, and I think it's, 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 it's really key to understand, is this UN legitimacy, which went from those original founding states through the period of decolonization to embrace all of its 193 members today, is a unique bond of trust that nobody else has. You know, I've worked for the World Bank, I was the Vice President of the World Bank. I've watched it with its money power try to control and drive the development debate. But the MDGs did not come from the World Bank. They came from the UN. Uh, and it is the case that that kind of convening power, that universal power, that sense that it is an institution which is on the side of the weak country and the poor citizen, not just the rich, is a compelling idea which has somehow survived all kinds of transgressions by UN leaders over 70 years. You know, the UN is littered with times where it's basically been seized control of by the US or Western powers and made party to some really outrageous acts in the Middle East and elsewhere. But nevertheless, somehow this bond of trust, this being the global organization that people everywhere uh, view as their representative, has been sustained. And it's that sort of extraordinary political adaptability uh, which I think gives the UN an ability to grow and change. And the final point is, is, if you like, the technology thing. 
the UN is, you know, through circumstances of its birth, is crowded in its main headquarters in New York into a funny little plot on the uh, on the e East River, Turtle Bay, as it's 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 it's, it's, it's known, and. You know, I watched as this organization became, you know, a, a, a multi-stakeholder organization and admitted civil society to its deliberations. The place was bursting at the seams. You would walk, and Jonathan was a big sort of pusher of this. You know, you'd, you'd find, walk down these sort of dark sort of subterranean corridors and there would be a, you know, movie star on, on, on one side and a former leader of somewhere on the other, and, you know, dozens of people in representing indigenous or disabled exactly. causes. Outfits. Yeah, and let me tell you, they're hard to get past if yeah. you're in a hurry to get to a meeting. Um, and um, in fact, you know, I, when I was much later a British minister with, and, and in the UN, I always used to say that the reason I could jump over the Zimmer frames of the House of Lords to get to the vote before, um, before the division bell closed was because of the time I'd spent in the UN trying to get round Jonathan's disabled representatives, you know, <laughs> round a wheelchair, racing, uh, to get... So the UN was just bursting with this new sort of energy and activity of people representing different causes, whether it's the disabled or the, decision, the, 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 the indigenous, whatever it was, they were all there. But the place was bursting. And now, of course, the glory is the prospect of a social media platform which allows the UN to have a global conversation without everybody having to crowd their way <coughs> into the basement of the UN building. And if it can meet that challenge too, and become the center of a kind of global consensus building platform around the different issues and bring together the different stakeholders around those issues, be they business, civil society, states, regions, whatever it is. The power of the UN to reinvent itself is not to be underestimated. This is a UN which has had four very different lives, as I've described during four very different periods of world politics. I suspect its fifth lies ahead. And you know, given the changes, the technology-induced changes, the integration of global trade at the same time as this new sort of standoff in global politics, it will require ingenuity and imagination and a Secretary General and leadership which kind of understands the world and the challenges in which it must operate. But we produced those kinds of secretary generals and leaders before. You know, Doug Hammarskjöld, an obscure Swedish official, as surprised as anybody, I suspect, by his appointment as secretary general. Kofi Annan, much less surprised, but nevertheless, you know, a mid senior level, but nevertheless, you know, a UN undersecretary general, the first time ever that somebody had been taken from within the ranks and made secretary general. Both these individuals rose to the challenges of their time. Hammarskjöld to decolonization, Kofi to the post-1989 world, uh, in a way that the organization followed them. And so, you know, there are a lot of people around this room involved in this campaign to try and open up the selection of the next Secretary General to more rigor, to more competition, uh, to really a kind of talent race for what woman or man is best able 
uh, to lead this organization in the next century. And, you know, the one for seven billion tagline of this campaign, I think, represents the real importance of this. You know, politicians dismiss the UN. They feel it threatening in some cases, annoying in others. But for that bond of trust that I've described, there are seven billion people out there, an overwhelming majority of whom still have an extraordinary, extraordinary reservoir of support for it. Just as the British campaign was starting, the, um, the, the UN the, the model university, university level program had, a, had its annual session in, 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 in the Methodist Hall, Church Hall, Westminster, where the UN held its first General Assembly. There were 1,700 people bursting from the rafters, students who'd come in from all over Europe for this, paid their own way. And as I opened it, I said, eat your heart out, Mr. Cameron and Mr. <laughs> Neither of you will address a rally this large <laughs> in the course of the campaign. And this sense in which the UN still has that legitimacy and authority, even as national politics phrase and in many ways fails to adjust and adapt and capture uh, the mood of its times, is something that we can all hold dear. So, you know, I think the UN at 70 is at one level, you know, it sounds like time for the old darling to slow down a bit, but I actually think it's just a modest start. Uh, and the prospects of this organization becoming ever more central as the power of states and the shape of states shifts and diminishes, and as the rise of non-state actors grows, it just makes this organization with its adaptability and its uh, ability to take on its times, whatever it throws at them, you know, more important than ever. Thank you. Here we are.